0: Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord and our God, we turn to your word now and ask that you teach us. Teach us not just information, but rather teach us who you are. Help us to see you with eyes that are opened by your hand, by your work, by your grace. Help our hearts and our minds to fully apprehend who you are. May we have some glimpse of your glory. May we be transformed for we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well this 131st psalm was the psalm that I was going to originally when I plotted things out for the summer going to look at later on in the summer. Uh, but, but as I was thinking about things with today being the day that we were uh, focusing or not focusing on so much but but recognizing our graduates uh, I thought that this might be a wonderful psalm to take a look at it seemed to fit the theme of of graduates not just for them but but for all of us but but certainly for those who were graduates it seemed to make sense if you have your your Bible open you'd see a title on the top of the psalm it says a song of a sense of David and, and two things that we want to note about that right away is just just first off a song of ascent. we've talked before is is as they were headed up to Jerusalem right as they were there on this journey to the Holy Land they would sing these Psalms They would be for worship as they went on this journey to keep their minds focused on the one who was their Lord and, and I would hope that for all of our graduates, whatever they've graduated from and graduated to, wherever they're heading, that indeed, as they go on their journey, that indeed their minds would be focused on the Lord and the fact that, that He is with them and that He will go with them along their various journeys. We all need to remember that message, don't we? That, that the Lord is with us wherever we go, whatever we do. Uh, we never have a time that is apart from Him remember that we have that blessing for sure secondly it says it is a psalm of David David the boy who became king you recall he was the the man after God's own heart inspired by God to write these very words John Gill suggests that this psalm was written by David in his younger days before he came to the throne while he was still in Saul's court possibly John Calvin on the other hand says that David had been made head of God's people and in order to prove that he was their lawful prince entitled to the allegiance of the faithful he is desirous to show that he had not been influenced in anything which he had attempted by ambition or pride but had submitted himself with a quiet and humble spirit to the divine disposal perhaps but either way, whether it was before David became king or after he became king, the fact remains that we are still called in this psalm toward the same character traits, right? Those same traits that, that run counter to our culture and the things our culture calls us to. There are things that we should seek out, even as culture calls us in a different direction. We should cry out to God, asking him to give us these traits. What is the first of them? Well, first, a deeply ingrained humility. Verse 1 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I say deeply ingrained, first off. Because we look at the breadth of the focus in this first verse right It looks at the the heart it looks at the eyes it looks at perhaps the mind and the hands right the the heart oh Lord my heart is not lifted up the eyes my eyes are not raised too high the the mind or the hand perhaps Uh, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me taken all together the the clear message is I, I do not occupy Uh, myself with these things in all of my being right in all of my being the whole of me is humbled that's why I say this deeply ingrained humility I say deeply ingrained for a second reason too and that's the a little inside baseball here for, for, for the theologians right the the tense of the verbs in the Hebrew here is what's called the preterite but what What that tense of verbs does is it expresses not a one-time action but rather a habit of life right it's not saying that you know today i woke up and i decided that my heart would not be lifted up and and you know on this occasion anyway my eyes are not raised too high no the, the idea is that this is the standard way i live my life this is the the cause i'm committed to the way that i'm going to walk through life is is in such a matter that I am I am caring about this deeply ingrained humility. It's not just a mask that I've put on today to kind of fool people who are around me. It's not something that I'm trying to show just this for for public consumption and then in real life, you know, I'm, I'm nothing like that. No, it is deeply ingrained. It is a part of my person through the work of God. <clears throat> now, what is it? It's a humility. It doesn't doesn't mean that, that each of us always needs to occupy the lowest spot but but it does mean that we're willing to right that we're willing to occupy the the lowest place we should be willing to and wherever we are whether it's a low place or a high place we should realize that we need to occupy it with humility especially if we are occupying a high place right because if you're in a position of, of power or authority or achievement it can be so easy to start to think a lot of yourself can't it you know I I'm really talented I'm really uh, popular I'm really powerful I'm really accomplished boy aren't I special it would be really easy to then start to have a pride that runs counter to the kind of humility that we need to have right not the power and position necessarily a bad thing remember David indeed was was either at this point or at a later point the king of the people of God uh, so it's not a matter of of saying that you can't have any of these things uh, in fact God tells us in James chapter 4 humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you Right? So God's not against exalting us. Although I, I do want to point this out real quick. That, that's not like a, 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 a fake humility strategy. right? I mean, we could read it that way, couldn't we? Like, I want to be exalted. I want to be made much of. How do I go about doing that? Well, I'll humble myself so that God will make much of me, so that I'll become big and powerful and everything. You know, and it's just a strategy. That's not the idea behind it. The idea is that God wants to use people and work through people who truly are humbled in their heart, who truly are are humbled and who truly desire to follow him above all else. You know, there was a a line in that corporate prayer of confession that we prayed today that that I hadn't even thought of until we prayed it today, actually, um, where we prayed, wound our hearts that they may be healed, break them, that you might make them whole. God does that, right? He he sometimes wounds us that he might heal us, right? And and sometimes we need that, right? If we become too dependent upon ourselves, on our own abilities, sometimes we need to be humbled. We should seek to be humbled when that is what is necessary, right? But, But as we become humble, that doesn't mean we can't realize that we do anything good Through the power of God, certainly we do, and certainly we might be exalted. I love the line that C.S. Lewis has in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where he says that God wants to bring a man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world, know it to be the best, and rejoice in that fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. see that's the idea of true humility right not necessarily saying I'm a worm and I'm terrible and I can't do anything right and I'm horrible woe is me that's not true humility because it's still focused on self right what what true humility does is it it looks at others even as you would look at yourself it and it sees no differentiation And so we rejoice in the good things that God is doing in our lives, that he's doing through us. And even the good things that he's he's blessed us that we might achieve for him. But we are no more proud of them than we would be if they had been done by our neighbor. Now let's be honest, it's really hard to do that. It's, It's not easy at all. It's not our natural way. So we should commit ourselves to praying for god's grace that he would enable us to be this type of humble grace to be humble grace to consider first the needs of our neighbor even before we consider the needs of ourselves grace to love our neighbor as ourselves even when we don't want to right it's it's easy to love your neighbor as yourself when they've been really kind to you and they've done lots of nice things for you and they've been great neighbors But how about that neighbor that's just a thorn in your side? They just pester you and they cause problems. And, and, you know, I think we've all known somebody like that, maybe not a next-door neighbor, but somebody in our life who's just, just trouble. It seems they just live to make your life miserable. We're called to love them humbly, just as Christ Jesus has humbly loved us. As followers of Jesus, that's one way we humble ourselves. I think there's another way that we humble ourselves, though, too. And it's seen in the second part of that verse one. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. As modern thinkers, especially in the Reformed tradition, we really like to understand everything. You know, to systematize it, to put it into a nice, uh, tidy box with a, a really pretty bow on top and have everything kind of all wrapped up and put together that way uh, it, it's, it's kind of our heritage and our tradition we like to understand everything perfectly um, but, but the reality is if you ever find yourself trying to describe the things of God and you say something like well it's really simple actually it's just like dot 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 Just stop yourself before you get to the dot, 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 right? Because you're likely about to wander into some kind of heresy, right? Because because the things of God are not simple. God is infinite. He is eternal. He He is so far beyond our finite minds that we cannot come up with trite analogies and simple illustrations that will actually communicate the truth Of who he is now that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand who he is but we should realize that there are things that we won't understand because we only understand the things that God reveals about himself to us and there are things that he does not reveal Deuteronomy 29 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law Right in Proverbs twenty-five two says it is the glory of God, to conceal things, but the glory of kings, to search things out. You see, the idea is that we should seek out truth and understanding. We should we should pursue knowledge. We should try to to gain as much as we can for sure. But at the same time, we should realize that there will be some mystery. Right? We we don't have to have all the answers completely figured out. In fact, we can't have all the answers completely figured out right we know that God exists in Trinity three persons in one God how does that work I don't know I trust on faith in the word of God that it does that's how it works that's how he is that's who he is but I don't understand exactly how it could be Jesus Christ is holy God holy man not half and half but a hundred percent and a hundred percent how does that work I don't know there's a mystery there admittedly and we accept it by faith God is completely sovereign over all things and yet I'm totally responsible whenever I sin how does that work I don't know but I know that's how it works we leave room for mystery for the things that we don't know as one commentator said the great and wonderful things are meant the great and wonderful things meant are God's secret purposes and sovereign means for their accomplishments in which man is not called to cooperate but to acquiesce we must give ourselves over to these things we should pursue knowledge but we need to remember two things first just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it's not true right what, what a proud way that would be to think of things, right? Well, well, if I can't figure it out, nobody can, right? right? Second thing, even more than pursuing knowledge, we should pursue wisdom, right? Wisdom, we should, should understand wisdom. One of my professors at seminary, Jack Collins, said that wisdom is skill in the art of godly living, and I love that definition. I think it's a wonderful definition. We should pursue skill in the art of godly living. It's not just to do this and don't do this, but rather getting to know God better, pursuing God, who he is, and, and pursuing and proclaiming all that is true and good and beautiful. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing more true, more good, and more beautiful than Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the truest. He said it after I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me right so so we should pursue those things we should have the same mind that he had Philippians 2 tells us though he was in the form of God he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man being found in human form He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. We are to have this mind among ourselves. It doesn't come naturally. It's not our natural way to do things. I think of Matthew 18. When the disciples came to Jesus, they said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you catch the subtext there, don't you? Right? They're saying, who's the greatest? Like, you know what? What makes somebody the greatest? The reason I want to know is because I want to be the greatest, right? I want to be the greatest. I want to be the tops. When when your story is written down, Jesus, I want to make sure I'm in the first paragraph, right? That's the idea there. On another occasion, Mark 10, right? The disciples came to him, not all of them, but James and John specifically, and and they said, teacher, do what we want, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, to glory. That's exactly what's going on here in Matthew 18, right? When they ask this question, who is the greatest? And Jesus answers them by, by calling to him a child. The word's literally the word that's used often for infants. It's a little child. And he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? One thing that should mark our lives is deeply ingrained humility. Second thing that should mark our lives is a joy-producing contentment. Verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Right? This child with its mother literally it says this child on its mother right so the picture here is is this child is is weaned it's no longer so small that it it is it is left to just cry out whenever it's hungry and to to weep and wail and 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 scream because it's hungry needing to be fed but it's still small enough that it can crawl up in mom's lap right and 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 rest in mom's protective loving arms Right, this little child no longer though needing to act on every impulse, no longer needing to do everything from a selfish point of view right? and having learned a certain contentment that comes with that Right, when the whole world doesn't surround me, I can find contentment right the world tells us You can do whatever you want to do right just focus on yourself work hard do whatever you want to do you can become whatever you want to become now there's a lie to that right because because if you're five foot three you are not going to become an offensive lineman in the nfl right it's just not going to happen it can't happen right there there are certain limitations now certainly there are all kinds of things we can accomplish but but there's no promise that whatever you set your mind to you will have right? sometimes the church even will try to misrepresent the word of god right we say well philippians 4 13 says i can do all things through him who strengthens me right so so maybe i can become that offensive lineman after all you know maybe there's still hope for me at the age of 50 to become a major league pitcher i think i can you know eh? no there's no hope but what Philippians 4 13 is saying is not that that I could do that but rather it's saying that I can be content in whatever situation I'm in right it says I can endure whatever comes my way if you look at the context of that in Philippians 4 that's what Paul's talking about he says I know how to be brought low and I know how to be brought high right he's saying no matter what I do I can endure anything I can be content in any situation the power of God in me right the world tells us not to be content It says don't be content that's what the world tells us all the time Uh, uh, it tells us that you know if you've got an apartment you probably need to get a house right? Go get a house. And if you have a a starter house, you need a bigger house, right? And after you got the the bigger house, you probably need a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood. And then when you have the bigger house in the nicer neighborhood, you look around at your neighbors and their houses are nicer. So you probably need a nicer house yet, right? That's just how the world speaks to us. Advertising thrives on this, inviting comparison, right? We look at others and compare them to ourselves. and, And as one person put it once, comparison is the thief of joy, Right, I think back to this one time, I, it was a winter day here in Michigan, and you guys know how Michigan winters are, but for some reason, by the mercy of God, it was like 53 degrees that day. And I remember, wow, this is the greatest day ever. But then I looked at the weather app on my phone, and because I have family in other places, I have temperatures pop up in those places, and I noticed that down in Dallas, it was 75 degrees. And all of a sudden, I became discontent. Man, 75 degrees! I wish it was 75 degrees here. Right, a moment before, I was thrilled with 53 degrees. What changed? The 53 degrees didn't become any less comfortable, less wonderful, less of a blessing to have, no. I just looked at somebody else who had something even better and it robbed my joy right because I was thrilled with 53 until I saw the possibility of 75 that's how social media works often you know that's one of the dangers of social media among those who use it a lot right because because we look at the world around us and people, of course, aren't sharing the worst of their lives, they're sharing the best of their lives. And so we, we look at Facebook, for instance, and we see everybody around us, all of our friends, all of our, our, our you know, companions, all of our family members, everybody sharing these pictures of their great vacation and of this wonderful meal and of, of this beautiful family picture with everybody smiling and happy. And we look at the life around us and we realize that the skies are gray and our lives aren't always happy. And we compare our okay to this veneer of wonderful and all of a sudden we become less content. They've actually done studies on this. It, it's, it's undeniable, it's been scientifically demonstrated that this is the case. Right? See, so we need to have contentment. 1 Timothy 6 says godliness with contentment is great gain. William Plummer once said it's better to be a humble beggar than a proud prince. A lowly penitent than a haughty angel. So true. Right? That's what Satan was, right? A haughty angel. and One who was not content with his place. One who wanted more even though he had so much. We do the same every time we sin. We've been blessed so much. Why would we ever sin? Why would we ever go against what God has told us? Why would would we ever turn our back on him or shake our fist at him and yet we do that every time we sin? We need to remember that we don't know better than God. He knows better than we do. He knows knows more than we know we are quick to leave the path of righteousness because we don't enjoy the path of righteousness sometimes but we need to remember that the path of righteousness though we might not enjoy it though it might not be the easy road to enjoyment it will surely be the road to true and lasting joy consider the example of Jesus once more Hebrews 12 speaks of how he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. That's interesting, isn't it, right? He despised the shame, right? It doesn't say he enjoyed the cross, right? I mean, that's kind of intuitively obvious, but I think we need to stop there for a second. Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross saying, cool, this is great. It was horrible. It was terrible. It was the most excruciatingly painful, both physically and emotionally and spiritually, most excruciating painful thing that anybody had ever endured. He didn't enjoy that experience, and yet... We're told that he adored it for the joy that was set before him, right? He knew that the road that God had him following was a road that would lead him to joy. God's plan always, ultimately, will lead to our joy. And so we should have a deeply ingrained humility. We should have a joy-producing contentment. finally, we should have a rightly placed hope. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever more Derek Kidner says the last verse rouses us from contemplating David to following his example and that of his greater son not through introspection but through being weaned from insubstantial ambitions to the only solid fare that can be ours you know I'm gonna be honest with you if you just let me be driven by my appetites and my desires I would have cake for dinner Cookies for lunch and ice cream for breakfast the next morning, right? You know, I'd, I'd you know, have dessert on top of my dessert. That, that's what my appetites would do. That's what I'd enjoy. But, but what would happen? Well, a couple things would happen if I just followed my appetites and, and, and placed my joy and my hope in those. I, well, first off, I, I'd find that, that my hunger, though satisfied for an instant, would soon be back. And when it was back, we would find that I was five pounds heavier and more enslaved to my appetites than I was before, right? Jesus says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That should be our food as well, right? That which truly strengthens, which truly nourishes, which truly energizes, that which draws us closer to him right? not seeking our own will but seeking the will of the one who made us and redeemed us and who who preserves us and who has prepared good works for us that we might walk in them while the world is constantly telling us that the problem is out there and that we just need to dig deep within for the solution we know the truth that the problem is within it is as Alistair Begg says An inside job and we need help from without and that's the good news about the gospel isn't it that our hope comes from without not from our own feelings our own passions our own desires our own thoughts our own insights no hope comes from somewhere else it comes from the person of Christ Jesus He who set aside his glory and took on human flesh. He who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He who was laid in the grave but rose from the dead and ascended on high and sent his spirit to dwell within us even now. We need to trust in him and in him alone. He is the one in whom we should place our hope. The world tells us to hope in all kinds of other things. The world tells us that we we should trust in power and hope and power and wealth and possessions. It's always been the case right it tells us to to trust in intelligence right uh you know it tells us to to look to politics and put your hope in politics right each election is the most important election of our lifetime right and if the wrong candidate wins then all hope will be lost right until the next election when it's the most important election if the wrong candidate wins all hope will be lost until the next election you get the idea right the world tells us to look after those hopes. It tells us to look after physical fitness and appearance, that those are the things. But, but they provide us with no fountain of youth. Beauty is fleeting. They tell us to chase after talent and relationships and thousands of other things to find our hope in them. But if we try to find our joy for today and our hope for tomorrow in the ways of the world, we are doomed to ultimately be disappointed Right? So, so use whatever power or wealth or authority you have, certainly, to, to make, make good, to make things uh, serve God. Use them for good. But don't make their accumulation your ultimate hope. Seek truth, seek knowledge, seek intelligence for sure. But above that, seek wisdom. Vote for the right candidates that you think will, will serve best the purposes of God. But as Psalm 146 tells us, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Take care of your body, but realize that we are but dust, and to dust we will return. Right? For we walk not in the ways of the world. They believe that we need to look out for ourselves, because if we don't look out for ourselves, who will? They believe that if we, we, we need to see our world as if we are the center, right? That, that everything needs to revolve around me. They believe that we always need to be achieving and attaining and acquiring more, more, more. that We can never be satisfied with what we have because as soon as you're satisfied, somebody else will get more. They believe that we should ground our hope in the same things in which they ground their hopes, wealth and power and popularity and all these other things when we do these things we are building our lives on shifting sand and when the rain falls and the winds rise up the life that we've built is sure to crumble we will find that we have built on faulty hopes instead we must build our lives upon the rock right that rock which is a stone of stumbling for some but for us Is a rock of refuge, that rock which was cleft for us that we might hide ourselves within it, that rock which was struck that we might drink from it water of life, that rock which is Jesus. He is the rock upon which we must build our lives today and forevermore. Not just because he is the perfect example of humanity, but because he has made us and he has sustained us He has redeemed us and he is our king. May we never forget this fact and may we always live our lives for his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we do pray that you would reorient our hearts and our minds and our very lives that we would in all things live for you we pray that you would give us a deeply ingrained humility that you would give us a joy producing contentment that you would give us a rightly placed hope That we would not seek after the ways of the world cause us to be different And though it is hard to be different in the world, though we will stand out, may we find our joy and our peace not in social acceptance, but may we find it in you. For the sake of Christ Jesus, your Son, who lived and died and rose again, that we might be yours. We pray this in his name. Amen. You're able would you rise with me as we sing now our concluding hymn hymn number 459 my hope is built on nothing less